0: But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger.
2: Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. We've got six insightful, informative conversations to bring your way this week. But before we get to those, I want to remind you to visit the Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Everything you need is at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. I tweet often, so make sure to give me a follow there. Coming up on the show today, James Kennedy, he's a financial advisor to athletes. In the last month or so, we've had the NFL draft. Many instant millionaires in sports, how do they handle their money and the immediate uh, dollars that come with their fame? We'll talk to James Kennedy coming up on today's show. Maury Brown from TheBizOfBaseball.com will join me. We'll talk about the... Dodger sale being finalized. Magic Johnson, Stan Kasten, and company are now the official owners of the Dodgers. What does that all look like? We'll catch up with Maury Brown from com. Dr. Carl Kaluza will join us. We'll talk about CTE and head traumas, injuries via sports. Unfortunately, the passing of Junior Seau of the San Diego Chargers, New England Patriots, Miami Dolphins uh, has brought that topic to the forefront. So we will catch up with Dr. Kaluza during the show today. Caleb Canales, who is the interim. Uh, Head basketball coach of the Portland Trailblazers. Really interesting guy. Young guy. Reminds me a lot of Eric Spolstra, the coach of the Miami Heat. Kind of NBA coach 2.0, as I call them. They have a great handle on today's players. You'll hear my conversation with Caleb Canales. Coach Gino Ariama, Hall of Famer. UConn women's basketball coach, also the head women's basketball coach of Team USA that's going to be playing in the Olympics this summer, the ladies. So Gino Oriyama will stop by. And then finally, a conversation you will not want to miss – BCS Executive Director Bill Hancock. Lots of changes coming with the BCS. They're headed to a four-team playoff format. What will that look like? Why are they moving to this format? You'll learn all those answers in my conversation with Bill Hancock, the Executive Director of the BCS. Lots coming up on today's show. All those interviews ahead. I'm Brian Berger along with Brian Griggs. You're listening to Sports Business Radio.
0: This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up.
2: It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything Is On The Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, we're back. Every year, the NFL draft makes several hundred college football players instant millionaires but how do they manage their money many of them have never been used to having this amount of money so we wanted to bring on james kennedy managing partner of kennedy financial strategies he helps athletes manage their money james how are you hey brian how are you i'm doing great thanks for taking some time to join me thanks for having me on the show So talk to us about your company and what you do and how you help athletes, because you know, we read the stats about lottery winners, and people who win the lottery, most of them wind up broke. Being a pro athlete isn't all that much different. You've never had this amount of money before. Now you're an instant millionaire. How do you help them manage their money?
3: Exactly. Um, You hit the nail on the head. The issue here is really a lack of business and financial education. So most guys are experts at their position, at their skill set. They've been playing their sport for their entire life, but they come from typically uh, just an uneducated background. So it's really a a process, um, you know, where we're we're looking to educate the athlete in terms of saving, thinking about their future, um, investing to protect their family.
2: So, okay, the biggest challenge I would imagine in your position is there's nothing more important to people than their money. So how do you get these athletes to trust you with their money? Because we've read about all the scams and someone wakes up one day, whether it's Billy Joel or an NFL player, and your money is gone. How do you get them to trust you?
3: Exactly. Well, I'd say credibility is probably the biggest challenge. And uh, we work strictly via word of mouth through referrals. So a lot of clients come to me through uh, other clients, and basically they're relying on their teammates to help guide them. So a lot of guys are looking to veterans to steer them in the right direction or to their agent as well.
2: James Kennedy, managing partner of Kennedy Financial Strategies, joins me. What's the first thing you say? Give me your elevator pitch. When you sit down with a prospective client, what do you say to them?
3: Uh, again, it's all about education. Uh, you do not want to go out and spend this money. We like we like to look at things in terms of putting them in different buckets. And if there's business opportunities that come up, you know maybe we're looking at that as a speculative bucket, as opposed to 70 to 80 percent of your money that should be in a conservative bucket.
2: Do you manage their money to the point where you're literally giving them a monthly allowance and okay your paycheck came in we'll manage your paycheck we'll give you x amount to pay your you know monthly bills but then the rest of it we're going to invest in various portfolios and do you do that
3: Yes yes we do actually that's an ideal situation we've got clients across the board some clients are really more of a transactional basis, they might come to us and say, hey, here's a, a portion of my assets that I'm looking to do this with. In an ideal situation, we have comprehensive, We have a comprehensive relationship with the player. Uh, just as you said, we set up a budget for them. We'll address their income taxes. We'll make sure there's no issues with the IRS. We'll set up investments. We'll look at uh, estate planning and insurance in case something happens where they might get an injury. Um, It's really more of a a comprehensive business and financial engagement.
2: I would say, in my experience with pro athletes, the uh, don't-invest properties include restaurants, clothing companies, and record labels. Would you agree with that?
3: Absolutely. Once again, you hit the nail on the head. Those are uh, investments that we like to steer our clients away from. We're really looking to maximize income off of their assets, If uh, a player signs a $5 million deal, you have to realize that only a portion of that is guaranteed. After that guaranteed money is paid out, they're only receiving 50% on that money after taxes. So you're really looking at a much smaller number.
2: And the other thing is, too, is uh, you you have to sit down and explain to these guys with that money, if you never sign another contract, you've got to make this last the rest of your life. Do they understand that?
3: You know, that's really the biggest challenge in this business is – Getting guys to understand that at anywhere from 18 to 22 years old, depending upon what league they're playing in, this could be it. You know, you might make a million dollars, you might make 10, you might make 70, but it's got to last the rest of your life, and you got to start thinking about what do I want to do after the game? What's the next move?
2: James Kennedy, managing partner of Kennedy Financial Services, is joining me. Um, What do you do when a player's wife or girlfriend or brother or relative picks up the phone and says, hey, uh, wire me some money? We're buying a boat. Or, you know, we're doing something that you just don't agree with as a strategy to uh, spend that money.
3: You know, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that I actually ask my clients to put on us. I don't want my clients to ever be in a position where they've got to turn down a family member. That's really my job. That's why they're hiring me.
2: Yeah, I mean, that you probably get hit up by your family and friends more so than anyone else, right, if you're a pro athlete?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So that's interesting that you'll play uh, bad cop on that. How often do you find yourself uh, touching base with your clients?
3: Uh. Pretty much on a weekly, if not daily basis. I just uh, was talking to a client that signed this morning with the Saints.
2: Interesting. How many clients do you have uh, overall that are pro athletes?
3: Uh, currently seven clients that are athletes, but we're always looking to add to that roster. So I'm hoping this offseason we can get a good five guys on board and get that into the double digits.
2: Here's the other thing that's tricky is if you're an agent and you refer your client to someone like yourself or another financial company, you know, it could be seen as a conflict of interest. How do you, uh, I guess, battle that label?
3: You know, again, most of our, our referrals come from existing clients and other players. Typically... A lot of agents, I've noticed, are are pretty hands-off. They don't even want to get involved in the the actual financial aspects of managing a player's wealth. They're more about contract negotiation, uh, endorsements. And I think that that actually provides a layer of checks and balances. I think that's a good thing. I think players should have an agent handling those negotiations and a business manager or a financial advisor like myself.
2: How many players do you come across that have, hey, my cousin Joe or my brother Bill is handling my finances and they're paying them out to, you know, 18 people in their entourage every month?
3: On a weekly basis.
2: So, I mean, how do you unring that bell and kind of reel that in and say, all right, here's how we do it the right way?
3: Yeah, you know, again, it's really, it's a process. I might meet a player at the draft or at the Super Bowl or at a charity event. And he may not sign with me for a year. So you establish a relationship and you build credibility and you develop that relationship just just as any other uh, consultative relationship. It takes time to establish that trust. You really have to be in this for the long term.
2: Just a few minutes left with James Kennedy, managing partner of Kennedy Financial Strategies. I hear stats all the time. I'm wondering if you have any of them of athletes that are broke within you know five years after they've retired those are pretty staggering numbers
3: yeah actually the nfl tops that list at about 78 percent i believe two years after their last paycheck the nba is not far behind i think they're in the 60 percent range uh mlb and hockey are, are a little bit better in terms of those statistics but uh our practice is geared towards the nfl and nba
2: Why are those numbers so high?
3: Again, you've got guys who've come from nothing to getting everything. If you're an 18-year-old kid, or 22 in the case of pro football, being handed a lump sum check, you you don't think about taxes. You don't think about what it costs to keep up a multi-million dollar home. You don't think about all of the upkeep and the budgeting that's required for these large assets.
2: It's interesting. So
3: you to, uh, pardon me. Go ahead.
2: No, go ahead. I would just say that's such it's interesting stuff because you're right. They don't think about the monthly budgets, especially the amount of money that they're now uh, blessed with having.
3: Exactly, exactly. And they don't realize that even if you've got a couple million dollars in the bank, in reality, you know, you, you may have to live off of that the rest of your life. So you you may get that signing bonus, but you can't go out and spend it. It's about the future.
2: So I'm sure you have money from your clients invested in, in different things. You know, Is it just a, a wide portfolio of different companies? How do you best invest that money so they can come back to you and go, hey, you did a great job maximizing that money I gave you?
3: Yeah, we're very conser- conservative from the uh, actual investment angle. We looked at fixed income investments, such as bonds and annuities, um, we're really, again, if a player wants to do something speculative, whether it's investing in their family or friends enterprise or even just getting more aggressive, we want to make sure that we set up separate buckets so that if something happens to the player, if he gets hurt and this is actually his last deal, he's still going to live off the interest that he's already made throughout the course of his career. So in an ideal world, basically, we want to set up the player where anything can happen to them and they're set for the rest of their life.
2: James, how did you get into this business? I know I have a lot of uh, younger people listening, students that want to work in the sports business. How did you get into this?
3: Yeah, ironically, I was a sports management major and uh, took a turn down the business route. Um, I worked with a couple of larger blue-chip firms. as with Merrill Lynch here in Beverly Hills for several years. And uh, three years ago, I made the decision after the financial crisis to strictly work with athletes and pursue that market. That's when I started the company.
2: Interesting. Do you have to go out and do a lot of recruiting, or like you said earlier, is this basically people coming to you uh, with word of mouth recommendations from your current client?
3: It's a little bit of both. Anybody that's looking to get into the sports industry has got to realize that you need to travel. Uh, it's going to be a lot of face time, especially starting up the company, and you know you really can't replace that. That's how you build up the trust.
2: What is your website? And I know you're on Twitter too. Uh, throw those out.
3: Yeah, the Twitter handle is Kennedy James M. And the website is www.kennedyfinancialstrategies.com.
2: Well, James, I appreciate you taking the time. Interesting stuff. And uh, let's have you on the show again.
0: Definitely. Thanks, Brian. This is SBR, back with more after this. Caught in the
2: rain, I'm lost in the streets. Got my eyes open wide but-
0: The website is
2: sportsbusinessradio.com. We bring on our friend Maury Brown from the bizofbaseball.com. Maury, how are you?
4: Hey, I'm doing great, Brian.
1: How
2: are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking a few minutes to join me. Yeah, no problem. So let's talk about the long, drawn-out saga of the Los Angeles Dodgers finally appears to be over. They've got new ownership. They had a press conference today at Dodger Stadium with Stan Kasten, Magic Johnson, and others. Uh, Just from what I've seen so far, Maury, since this deal was announced, it seems like that Dodger franchise is really re-energized on and off the field.
1: Well, it has, Brian. I mean, you really, you know, you could you could say that they're just by replacing Frank McCord, it would be addition by subtraction, but it's really much larger than that. Uh, when you think about this, um, this is really the first ownership since 1997 when News Corp um, purchased the club that they've really had ownership that they could be excited about. And Magic Johnson's going to be the highest placed African-American executive in Major League Baseball history right now. Um, And that's, you know, the tie between that and Jackie Robinson is, you know, substantial. So, I mean, it's a big, big deal. I mean, the team is performing exceptionally well on the field right now, even though it's an early season. You know, everything seems to be lining up pretty well.
2: Attendance-wise, are the Dodgers up this year over last year? Because I know, you know, last year you had the fan who was beaten in the parking lot on opening night. And then the drama with the McCords, Dodger attendance was down sharply. Is it spiking back up this year?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's coming up, Brian. I mean, it has it come up, you know, I won't say substantially, but it's up probably 6 to 7% right now, and that's a pretty big deal considering, you know, the Dodgers have always been a bellwether in terms of, of attendance. I mean, that has a lot to do with the fact that it's always, you know, it's pretty sunny in Southern California. And Dodger Stadium is the largest in Major League Baseball at 56,000. Uh, seating capacity so yeah it's up and that's a great thing I think fans understood you know the McCourt was on the way out they have something to look forward to and I mean once again it comes back to the, the team is performing exceptionally well on the field
2: so what happens to Frank McCourt now and how much does he pocket as he walks away from being the owner of the Dodgers
1: well nobody should feel too bad for Frank McCourt I mean you know you can say he's getting a touch too much here but <laughs> maybe more than that but he's he will come away with more than $1.4 billion after satisfying the money that he owes uh, Jamie McCord, $131 million. Um, He's going to do substantially well. And he will still be lurking around Dodger stadium, at least in some capacity. Um, He will be a partner with some of the members of the magic Johnson group that will develop the land around Dodger stadium. It's the largest undeveloped uh, parcel of land in Los Angeles. So, He'll still be around, although he'll have absolutely nothing to do with the day-to-day operations of the Dodgers organization.
2: Wow, that's interesting. And then, you know, I listened to Magic Johnson a little bit today, and we'll have some audio later in the show. But, you know, if there's one guy in Los Angeles who can rally the troops and get the fans excited, get the sponsors excited, knows how to do business, it's, it's Magic Johnson.
1: Yeah, I think the best quote that I've heard about this was Vince from Vince Scully who's a, you know, fantastic in pretty much every regard. But he had seen Magic Johnson many times at Dodger Stadium but had never had a chance to talk and when the agreement was reached to sell the team, Magic called up Scully pretty much, you know, on the day of that it happened and Scully said, you know, if it's possible Magic, I can hear your smile through the phone. And this is something, you know, he just has this you know, presence about him in terms of being a winner with the Lakers, in terms of all his entrepreneurial work that he's done in the Los Angeles community. I mean, he's been a fantastic businessman after his life as an NBA player and just what he can do in terms of reaching out to players. I mean, you know, the Dodgers have a huge leg up just having him involved at that capacity. I mean, that's an incredible thing to have that guy meet you at the door and say we want you to be part of this organization. That's a huge selling point
2: now for the Dodgers. No, you're right. I mean, if he picks up the phone and calls you or meets you at your door and is recruiting you as a free agent or trying to trade for you, you're going to have the utmost of respect for Magic Johnson. Maury Brown of thebizofbaseball.com joining us for a few minutes. We're talking some Major League Baseball. Uh, Matt Kemp, holy cow, what a year he's having so far. Looks like he's going to hit like 300 home runs and drive in 1,000, but they're 17-6 to start the season, and Matt Kemp is one of the biggest reasons why, so they're doing it on the field as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is really, you know, he's the driver behind this right now. He's basically the the best offensive player in the league right now, and that's a huge part of this. I mean, you know, that's the other thing about this. You know, he signed a multi-year extension that looks very good right now in terms of the value that they're getting out of them. You know, how they continue to move down the season will, you know, be in large part how this team does. I don't think initially I thought that the Dodgers might be big movers and shakers at the trade deadline, but word is coming out that, that you know, Stan Kazin, who's taking over as president and CEO of the Dodgers, Doesn't, isn't really interested in leveraging the future with the farm system, which isn't exactly that deep, Brian. So they may not be movers and shakers at the trade deadline as much as people think. I think they won't, maybe they won't have to depending upon how they're doing here as they come down the stretch.
2: On the other side of town, you've got the Los Angeles Angels, and everyone in baseball talked about that big contract that Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, handed out to Albert Pujols. Ten years, $240 million. There was a lot of buzz around the Angels organization. But, Maury, so far, you and I have the same number of home runs as Albert Pujols. Zero. It's been a big disappointment.
1: I, I need to get on some of that money, Brian. I mean, if this is what it's going to take for, for me to make that kind of money, I'm willing to take that role. No, I mean, it's I'm surely disappointing. You know, everybody's going to sit there and say, don't, you know, don't push yourself, you're jumping leagues, you know, don't push yourself. You know, and we heard this with Carl Crawford, although Carl Crawford and, and Albert Pujols are, of course, very different players last year. You know, so, I mean, it's a concern. It's a real concern beyond that. I mean, their bullpen is not very strong either. I mean, this is a real worry. You know, how when do you start to push the panic button in baseball is always the question. It's never in the first month. But, I mean, if they're sitting in this same position at the end of May, I mean, they're going to have to start to panic. So, And this is certainly not what, of course, Artie Moreno, you know, <laughs> cashed in on when he brought in Albert Pujols, you know, right away. It's not looking like a very good deal.
2: Well, and everyone thought, well, in years, you know, 6 through 10, this is going to be a tough deal for Moreno. No one thought that he'd get off to this kind of a start, and you're right, a lot of people you know, pressuring the Angels, who I think are already nine games out of first place in the AL West, so they're digging themselves a hole early, and this is why, Mori, I know we've had this conversation before, but just in sports in general, you tie up this much money with one player, whether it's Amari Stoudemire with the Knicks, or Albert Pujols with the Angels, it is a very risky proposition.
1: Yeah, it is, Brian. I mean, you don't want to tie up. I, I was interested to hear uh, during the winter meetings at the at that point in time when the pool holes negotiations were going on, John Mazzalik, who's the uh, general manager of the Cardinals, and this was on the day, basically, that they were getting ready to negotiate with him. I was sitting on a panel um, at a conference, and he said before that, he said, uh, he said there had never been a team that had allocated more than twenty percent to one player that had gone into the World Series, and it was a clear point being made that you know you can pay a lot of money for players, but if you don't spread the wealth around, it really doesn't work very well. And that I think is the general premise on some of these contracts. Now the Angels have a little bit more money to work with, but you know you made mention of those nine games. You know how many teams have made the World Series being this far out this late? It's exactly probably zero at this point. So, I mean, it's a serious thing to worry about for them. They'll have a difficult time with this, especially at the rate that the Rangers are going.
2: Yeah, and the Cardinals look genius right now because they didn't tie up all that money. They weren't held hostage by Albert Pujols. David Fries is having a fantastic year and has replaced a lot of the production that Pujols gave them. So has Beltran. So, uh, you know, again, it's just interesting. You don't invest that much money in one player because if you do, it usually doesn't turn out very well.
1: No, it doesn't. I mean, they're, you know... And this is the thing, Brian. I mean, it's becoming more difficult. There were, there have been changes to the collective bargaining agreement. We don't have time to go into it here on the radio. But they've baseball made it more difficult going forward after uh, the Pujols deal and after Ryan Zimmerman's deal that just happened. They've already made changes to allow some of these – you know, creative elements in some contracts to allocate so much money to players, these marketing agreements or what they call a service contract agreement for players after they retire. They're going to take that away from from agents. So these large-dollar deals are all going to have to be basically in their contracts for their playability, not some milestones and whatnot. And that would have affected uh, the pool's deal and certainly would have affected um, Alex Rodriguez's deal that had happened prior.
2: Maury, I've got to cut you loose, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us, and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. No problem, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That's Maury Brown with TheBizOfBaseball.com. Follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, at BizBallMaury. Podcast this
0: show and any other past SBR episodes at SportsBusinessRadio.com. Back with more SBR after this.
2: I see the way that you look at her. or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.
0: This is Sports Business Radio.
2: To give us a better understanding of CTE and head trauma via sports, right now I want to welcome to the show Dr. Carl Kaluza from the Legacy Medical Group here in Lake Oswego. Doctor, how are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. First of all, you're a friend of Dr. Desai, so that's a good thing right off the bat. Yeah,
5: he's a good guy. He's a good friend to have.
2: So explain to our audience what CTE is, because we've heard this in the news for so long, but a lot of people don't understand what CTE is.
5: Yeah, it's first described in boxers as early as the 1920s, where repetitive head trauma basically leads to progressive brain atrophy, where the brain loses nerve volume and gets smaller and less functional over time.
2: So, okay, how does that impact? I've read that there could be mood swings, there's Alzheimer's-like symptoms. What are some of the symptoms when this happens?
5: Well, it varies significantly from person to person. Uh, There are personality changes that occur. Um, You can see memory loss. You can see symptoms of mood disorders. People become anxious or depressed or sometimes um, just apathetic where they really don't want to do much. Um, People have trouble sleeping. Uh, It can affect um, overall function of the person. It also affects relationships a lot because personality changes, uh, for instance, Uh, If this is your spouse and you're used to their brain working a certain way for their entire life and that changes significantly, you're not really married to the exact same person anymore.
2: So from what I understand about CTE, it can't be diagnosed until after a person is dead. So how do you, you know, while they're living, how do you diagnose the fact that they've got something going on, they need some help, and maybe you can get them back to normal, or after you've got this, can you ever return to "quote unquote" normal?
5: I think if you have uh, full-blown diagnosed CTE, you're probably never returning to normal. The the milk has been spilled at that point already. So, the main emphasis is on trying to prevent the brain trauma that leads to the CTE.
2: So, okay, you know, I know you don't work for the NFL, but. They wear helmets and they've got padding in them. And how do you prevent it? If you're playing sports like pro football or college football, or even if you're a boxer, an MMA fighter, is it one of those things where if you get into that sport, you've got to understand that's the risk you're assuming? Or is there something that can be done to prevent that head trauma that leads to CTE? It's
5: interesting that uh, helmet technology has improved significantly where you're getting more... Force impact absorption as a result of the improved helmet technology and the air bladders and the chin straps are better. That also allows the helmet to be used more effectively as a weapon. And so I played the cross in college and I knew if I could plant the forehead of my helmet underneath the chin of the opposing player and get their head to snap back, that. I would induce a massive garage sale-inducing hit where basically their feet come off the ground, their eyes roll back in their head, and they may or may not be conscious anymore when they hit the ground. And the um, helmet allows you to do that in ways that you can't do in rugby, for instance, because you don't get to use your head as, uh, as, as much of a weapon as you do if you have a helmet on. Uh, things like mouth guards, people think those help. They've, uh, mouth guards have never been shown to reduce concussion incidents. And so um, really it's um, a burden on the referees and rules maker in the sports to try and prevent the head injuries because as a player, if I have the chance to impart a violent blow um, as part of the sport, then I'm going to take advantage of it.
2: First of all, I'm glad I never played lacrosse against you. <laughs> but secondly, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about here on this show is you turn on, you know, the TV and you watch the highlights. And a lot of these hits, the the crushing hits that knock someone out or that knocks them off their feet, that's what's glorified. So kids are being raised on that's how I make a hit. Is it something where we need to reteach down at the younger ages this is how you make a clean hit, let's eliminate helmet-to-helmet contact, and maybe you reduce some of these injuries? Yeah,
5: I think it does reduce it. If you look at the emphasis specifically that the NFL has had at trying to keep the quarterbacks on the field, uh, if, if your helmet touches the quarterback as a defensive player, you can get fined, um, even if it's an otherwise clean hit, because it's really good business for the NFL to keep their quarterbacks healthy. Um, So I think there are rules changes that can help. Um, As far as a grassroots effort, I have parents ask me, should I let my um, son play football because of these head injuries and concussions and it's dangerous? Um, Yeah, I think there there are tackling form things that can be done um, at a young level that would be helpful. It really doesn't change the fact that football is a violent sport, and one of the things that makes it both player and fan appreciated is the violence associated with the sport. So you really have to remove the violence to get rid of the injuries.
2: Dr. Carl Kaluza of Legacy Medical Group in Lake Oswego is joining me as my guest. We've heard a lot of people talk about that the NFL needs to provide players who are retired with mental health benefits if you were seeing someone who's retired they tell you they've got some things going on like how are you helping them post career with their mental health forget about their physical health for a minute
5: Well, i I consider mental health to be a part of overall health so i don't really differentiate it in my brain when i'm thinking about it and um, the the brain is what controls all of the bodily functions and so mental health is of paramount importance and people that have had a lot of head traumas um, can suffer in ways that are somewhat unique and um, football play, playing professionally, it's it's hard on the body. You know, if you look at people that have played professionally, they tend to die younger. They tend to get knee replacements young. They tend to have problems with post brain trauma issues uh, of mood in the brain and sleep and overall happiness. And I think that, Uh, Having people be aware of that on the front end, kind of like what exactly am I signing up for and is this worth it, Um, is part of that issue. And then um, on the tail end, when when the damage is done, it's a matter of um, trying to regulate sleep. There are medications that help. There are biofeedback things that help. Counseling can help. And um, most of all, being aware that it's a potential problem so that the players are talking about it to their physicians and the physicians are asking the players, hey, is this something that you might be suffering with?
2: With depression, I know, you know, that's been something that's been mentioned as part of this. How do you deal with that? I mean, is it again going in and talking to a counselor or a therapist? Is there medication that can help you?
5: But both of those help. Um, In depression in general, counseling helps about half of people. Medication helps about half of people. If you combine the two, you get about 75%. And one of the post-head trauma recommendations is that people avoid significant exertional exercise or basically rest their brain and their bodies. When you take a finely tuned athlete that's used to getting their daily dose of athletic endorphins and remove that... It's very common for people to develop depressive symptoms and sleep disorders as a result. And so this is actually a relatively common problem where people can't sleep or become depressed after a head trauma. And it's uh, a lot of different factors that lead up to that.
2: A few years ago, I had the pleasure of having dinner with Muhammad Ali, but I got to tell you, it it was a sad dinner for me because it was the end of the day. uh, His medications had worn off. He was having a hard time eating soup, and he was just really struggling, and it's not the Muhammad Ali that I had— seen in video and but if you box or you know you play hockey or football or anything like that this is what can happen Parkinson's is another uh you know something that can happen to you how many times do you see uh things like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's in former athletes
5: I see Parkinson's rarely uh, so Muhammad Ali is a, a very public example of that and a famous one but the Um, early onset dementia or Alzheimer's is a lot more common than the Parkinson's is. And that's something I see more commonly in athletes that have sustained a lot of head trauma. And, you know, any, any sport where there's repetitive blows to the head basically put you at risk. So you're looking at football, hockey, Australian rules, football, um, soccer uh, with headers, um, you know, over and over and over again, put you at risk The, the collisions that occur head to head contact in soccer, um, the speed that's generated on the ice in hockey probably puts hockey players at higher risk. Um, the difference there is with the hockey players, it's hard to tell because their brains weren't quite right to begin with. Uh, it's a little harder to figure out how much of a deficit they have.
2: Last question for you: In the NFL, you know they've put more strict rules into place about getting back on the field. You know, it used to be, hey, you convince your trainer and you're back out there. Now they take your helmet away. You've got to go through some tests. Uh, they maybe keep you out the rest of the game. Is that enough, or do they need to do more to be safe with the players before they allow them back out on the field?
5: There have been a lot of changes recently, right? The 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 idea of same day return to play is basically gone. Uh, in general, people are out for a week or longer now. All non professional athletes after a concussion should be out for a minimum of one week, and uh, in addition, have physician clearance to return to participation. And is that enough or does more need to be done? I think that's going to take decades to figure that out because you're not going to know what the effect of the current rules changes are until people have played for another couple of years, you know, put another 10 years of playing in. And then what does their brain look like when they're 50, 60, 70 and 80? And so I can't answer that question now. It's going to have to be ongoing data collection to figure that out.
2: One more thing, for the weekend warrior, you know, I play pickup basketball, if you get hit in the head and you think, well, gosh, I just don't feel right, what are some signs that you've got a concussion or a mild concussion and maybe need to go see your doctor?
5: Common signs are headache, confusion, nausea, difficulty concentrating, uh, impaired function around extra stimulus of bright lights or loud sounds are bothering you, and um, all of those are signs of a concussion. There are, there are more above and beyond that as well. And if you think you might have a concussion, uh, you should be resting your brain and seeking the advice of your physician.
2: Dr. Carl Kaluza of the Legacy Medical Group in Lake Oswego, thank you so much for taking the time. I'd love to have you on again in the future.
0: Oh, thanks. My pleasure. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com, podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back.
3: Okay.
2: It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, Coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything Is On the Record, visit us online at EverythingIsOnTheRecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EverythingIsOnTheRecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Happy to be joined by Caleb Canales, the coach of the Blazers. Caleb, how are you? Brian, doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing well. So let's talk a little bit about what you're up to now. We were just talking a little bit. uh, You know, the season is over, but there's so much work with this busy offseason in place, the draft and free agency maybe talk a little bit about what you guys are working on
6: yeah well no question I mean right now we're in the lab breaking down film uh, you know taking a closer look at our draft prospects uh, for this upcoming draft uh, you know taking a look at like you mentioned some free agents so it's a it's a lot of film work and a lot of film study right now
2: and I imagine you and Chad and the whole team are are getting together and, and having those conversations and then maybe talk about how do you come up with the strategy for the actual draft? All right, it's draft night, and have you, you watch video and you maybe eliminate some guys and you hone in on other guys and you go in with your big board, I imagine, like we always hear about. I've never been in the draft room, but the big board and who's on the board. How does that process work?
6: Well, you have to give Chad and his staff a lot of credit. You know, they've done a marvelous job to prepare us for past drafts and for this upcoming draft. And like you mentioned, you know, we have big boards like all the teams do, and you just got to be ready uh, for any – scenario possible out there you know and uh, I know Chad and staff are working on that as we speak Uh, you just got to be prepared you got to be ready because you don't know what can happen on draft night we've seen a lot of uh, different scenarios uh, you know come over the years and you know they're going to be ready and we're going to be prepared for it
2: your interaction with Paul Allen he comes to a lot of the games How's that been for you? Has that been pretty uh, exciting to maybe communicate with him more than you were before?
6: Well, you know, anytime, uh, you know, I get an opportunity to talk to our owner. I mean, he's the best owner in sports. He's been off the charts for us, for me personally. And, uh, you know, his, uh, his support has been great this year. And, uh, you know, anytime we can talk is it, a great time, you know, for me and uh, for us as a team. So, uh, you know, I had a chance to talk to him and, you know, Coach Carroll when they came down to the last home game. Uh, you know, so it's been a great experience and, and, and everything's been uh, very supportive coming from him.
2: Yeah, I talked to Coach Carroll when he was here and he mm. said he struck up a nice relationship yeah. with you and he spoke to the team before that game. I bet it's nice to have mentors in the league mm. and even though, you know, Pete Carroll's in a different sport, coaching is probably, you know, transcendent yeah. to all sports,
6: right? Yeah, no question, Brian. I mean, I think uh, leadership and coaching and, uh, you know, I've had a chance to go study Coach Carroll for a couple of weeks. Uh, I've had a chance to go spend some time with Coach Kelly down at Oregon, and uh, you know the opportunity for me to learn and grow as a coach. uh, Anytime I get an opportunity to sit down with with uh, coaches, um, you know their stature, of their leadership ability, uh, is a great learning experience for me. And uh, like you mentioned, you know I go up to Seattle, spend some time with Coach Carroll, and you know we're just kind of bouncing ideas off each other. You know that's been great for me. You know I feel like uh, our coaching philosophy is the same. Uh, you know, he's out there before the games, before practice, throwing passes to his receivers. And, uh, you know, he's high energy, uh, positive throughout the day. So it was a good experience for me.
2: Do you find maybe you're getting a few more return phone calls as the the head coach is, you know, than you were as the assistant? <laughs> if you call up a guy like Pete Carroll and say, hey, I want to come observe what you're doing. I'm friends with Eric Spolster, and right. I know he went and observed Chip Kelly. Yep. during the the lockout and you know when you're a head coach you'll get other head coaches to call you back
6: yeah well i mean for me you you know you touched on eric i mean i've talked to eric we've had a a great relationship the past couple years obviously him being from portland um me having my first internship interview with miami um you know i've had a relationship since then so i've had a chance to talk and text with him uh coach kelly's always been off the charts with me and you know in terms of going to watch them practice spending time with him and and, uh, coach carroll has been the same. So. Um, it hasn't been too much different for me in terms of communications with those guys. Those guys have been off the charts with me, always.
2: Caleb, you know, I've watched you for the last few years. You just seem like a guy who was born to coach. <laughs> I mean, much <laughs> like Eric. Yeah. You know, just these, you could just tell years ago that this is a guy that's going to be a coach in this league. When did you know, at what age? Was it 10 years old, 12 years old? What age did you say, I want to be a coach?
6: Well, I appreciate it, Brian. Um, you know, like I said, I've been very blessed and fortunate to be in the situation that I am. And, uh, you know... Um, You know, I prayed about it a long time ago when I was about 18 years old when I I think I kind of found out that I wasn't good enough to play uh, beyond high school. Uh, You know, in high school, I thought I was a pretty good player, but I wasn't that good. (laughs) Uh, The realization comes to you, right? You look back and you're like, I probably wasn't very good. But, uh, you know, ever since then, you know, I just wanted to study in the game. And, you know, one of the blessings that I had was it it felt very natural. It felt very calming, very relaxing when I was out there this season. Uh, You know, I think our coaching staff and our players were just... Um, marvelous throughout the process and you know we know and understand it was a challenging time but i thought you know we competed we played hard we played together but you know it's been very humbling but like i said you know i just want to keep attacking it a day at a time
2: how do you motivate the guys when you're going through a losing streak it's towards the end of a, a long season how do you get guys up and, and say hey bring your best tonight
6: well you know for us i know it was a great opportunity you know that's how we approached it um uh, you know for the young guys it was a great opportunity to get out there on the floor right and have us evaluate them um like i mentioned you know the nolan smith the luke babbitts uh i mean those were guys that put in so much work throughout the season uh, you know so having them get the opportunity to play is an exciting time uh, you know an exciting time for them obviously you know i know i talked to luke and after one of the games, I said, how do you feel, bud? And he was like, coach, I'm not used to playing 40-something minutes. <laughs> you know, so again, that is a skill that he has to keep developing. And, uh, you know, I know a coach told me a long t- time time ago is the ability to play 82 games is a skill. And, you know, you have to kind of go through those challenges and those speed bumps throughout the year for our growth and for our development. And again, you know, we came back as a team and we committed to each other. We committed to competing and to playing hard, to play together. That was our focus going into it, and I thought we did that.
2: Blazer coach Caleb Canales is my guest. Caleb, when you're the assistant coach, you can be a little bit more buddy-buddy with the players. When you're the head coach, sometimes you've got to lay down the law. Talk about that transition because I would imagine after, you know, being a real supportive guy and very close with the players, you've been instrumental in the development of many of the players on this team. How do you make that transition?
6: Well, you know, the one thing I know, I talked to Mr. Allen, to Mr. Miller and to Chad, and they said, hey, be who you are. And, uh, you know, I knew I could control that. And that's what I was going to continue to be. You know, I have a great relationship with the guys. And, you know, I think it grew, you know, when I got the position uh, even more. You know, that's not to say, I mean, we had tough conversations. I mean, that's part of the deal. And, uh, you know, at halftime, we had to adjust in certain ways. uh, And we have to keep finding ways to motivate and challenge our guys. And, you know, that's something that, like I mentioned, it just came natural. And, uh, you know, that's how we approached it. But, I mean, we have to have tough conversations like we did. And we understand that. Uh, you know, we need to get better as a team going forward, and, you know, that starts with this summer improving every day.
2: I always call Eric Spolstra uh, NBA Coach 2.0. <laughs> and, and I think you fit into the NBA Coach 2.0 mold, too, because you're a guy that understands today's technologies. You speak the language of the players. You're, you're not an old school guy. Um, and no offense against the old school guys, but you're really in touch with today's player. How does that help you in your communication with them?
6: Well, You know, I think, uh, you know, having the ability to communicate with the guys has always been something I've, uh, you know, leaned on, Uh, you know, in terms of spending the summer with them, uh, working out. You know, part of my responsibilities as assistant coach was the development areas. And a lot of that is in summers in their home cities, spending time with them. Uh, We'll do court work, drill work, and then Coach Bobby Medina, a strength coach, will come with me and we'll lift weights. Uh, You know, but it's all about relationships and there's no substitute for time and you know that's something that i've really tried to do with our guys throughout the years and and and, you know even more now as we go forward
2: how many guys are you seeing that come into the nba because there's a lot of one and done players these days that come in and are just really raw and they need that development work and maybe you know sometimes you shake your head and you're like wow you know i see the upside of this player but we got a long way to go between here and and them reaching their potential
6: well i think every player is different you know for example Um, You know, watching Kyrie Irving play this year, um, you know, he's a pretty good player. Right. You know, and he's going to be a player for a long time. You know, I don't know exactly how many games he played at Duke last season. But, um, you know, you look at him and, and, you know, you could see, uh, especially I think we played him early at the Rose Garden this season. And you kind of saw the game kind of be, it was slowing down for him already. And, you know, I think every young player is different coming into the league. Um, You know, the things I do know is that they need to get game winning habits. And have a game-winning routine and sometimes that takes time you know um, you know we wish it was like right now but it it takes time you know they need to go through the the first road trip the first back-to-back understanding the nutrition battle understanding the recovery battle uh, and the challenges at face so I think every player is different.
2: LaMarcus is a guy I think of season before last when it was like that Dallas game there was just like a, a switch that flipped and Instead of being a jump shooter, instead of being a guy that played on the perimeter, he went inside, he brought intensity every night, and we've seen it ever since then. What do you use to flip that switch? Because that's exactly what happened with LaMarcus.
6: Well, you know, LaMarcus is our all-star. and He understands, uh, you know, what he needs to bring to us every single night. And I thought he did a great job of it um, here, especially coming down the stretch. Uh, you know, we want to continue to put him in good positions to succeed. You know, we know we're going to post him up anywhere between 20 to 25 times a game. Um, you know, but sometimes he gets beat up down there, you know, and, and, and we need to do and I need to do continue to do a better job of moving him around where offensively, uh, you know, he's going to demand a double team. So anytime he can con- command a double team, you know, we know somebody's going to be open. we got to keep sharing the ball. We got to keep making the extra pass. Uh, we got to be ready to shoot on catch. And, you know, that's something that LaMarcus continues to grow and to develop and to get better and that's exciting not only for us but for me watching his development over the years that, um, you know, the sky's the limit and he's going to continue. I felt every year he's kind of brought something new to the table the following year uh, and that goes back to him, his work ethic throughout the summer.
2: Caleb, it's my understanding in the exit interviews, many of the players, if not all of them, voiced their support for you and said we'd love Caleb to be the head coach of this team for years to come. That's <laughs> got to make you feel really good.
6: Well, it it does, and it's very humbling, um, you know. And I really appreciate them, um, you know, and their effort uh, to close out the season. Um, like I mentioned, we made a commitment to each other, uh, shoot around in in Chicago, to commit to each other, to commit to competing and to playing together, and. Um, You know, I felt we were in, in pretty much all the games. You know, I know there was a couple games here and there. You know, we, we caught a hot Milwaukee team home and away. Right. Um and, You know, we had a difficult time with, you know. But, uh, you know, there was uh, – especially now that I'm, you know, studying the games that we did, you know, there's – you know, it comes – I always like to say, you know, game usually comes down to seven possessions either way. And, uh, you know, that whole – that held true in a couple of games that we played so uh you know we gotta just continue to find ways to get better and to improve and you know that'll start with an exciting summer for us
2: so before i let you go mm-hmm. peel back the layers of caleb canalis when you're not around basketball yeah. you like to go to the movies what do you do around town are you like 24 7 365 on, on basketball
6: that's pretty much it yeah. that's like eric yeah. <laughs> 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 that, that's pretty much it so uh uh, I like the show 24. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm a bit They canceled 20- it, so yeah, you're probably... Yeah, I- I'm still catching up on the past episodes. but Okay, uh,
2: you watch Lost? Do you ever see that? No,
6: I haven't seen Lost, so... That was but a good one. Was it? Yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, I'm, you know, 24, 7, 365 at the practice facility as much as I can. You know, just keep finding ways to improve and get better, so...
2: Nickname you Jack Bauer, right?
6: <laughs> that's a pretty good nickname. He right gets there. a
2: lot done in a day.
6: You do too. Yeah, he, he does get a lot done in a day. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Caleb, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Taking fun. the time okay.
2: and uh, continued success to you. And I uh, hope you're part of the organization
6: for a long time to come. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All
2: right. That's Caleb Canales, the head coach of the Portland
0: Trailblazers. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com SBRadio.
6: I know it's hard to remember. The people we
0: used to be It's even harder to picture The website is sportsbusinessradio.com.
2: Well, joining me right now on the show, an iconic basketball coach, Gino Oriyama, the UConn women's basketball coach. He's also coaching Team USA for the ladies. Gino, how are you? Doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, talk about win number 800 this season. You got that. What kind of emotions went through your mind when you got that milestone?
4: Um you know, it 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 wasn't um it wasn't what you know you would have expected because uh uh I, I wasn't aware that it was coming up that soon. I thought it was it was gonna happen uh sometime during the during the NCAA tournament or or, or towards the end of the year and uh um you know, it, it makes you realize I think that you're uh you've been coaching a while, you've been so so fortunate to have so many great players and uh it's been um it's been a great ride i mean i've had uh you know i've had some of the most unbelievable players ever to play college basketball play at connecticut and uh it's it's been incredible
2: yeah you've won seven national championships at uconn you've been the coach of the year six times obviously you're a hall of famer what else is there left for you to do before you hang them up one day
4: that's a good question. Um, one, I hope one of them involves uh, winning a gold medal this summer uh, in London. But uh, uh, as, as far as UConn is concerned, you know, I think every year you you, you kind of reevaluate and, and you, you look at the players that you have coming in, and uh, you know, when you are recruiting them, you talk to them about winning championships, and um, you know, if you get that opportunity um uh, I, I think that the, the lives of those kids that are playing for you at that point in time change dramatically uh, so as long as i you know as long as I keep getting the right kind of kids and and enjoyed the, watching them win championships i you know I, I keep getting the kick out of it. I think when that feeling is gone, then it's time to stop.
2: Gina Ariyama is my guest. all right, so I've got a daughter. she's very young, but Let's pretend here that you're coming into my living room and you're trying to recruit here, recruit her. What's your recruiting pitch? What do you say to kids when you sit in their living room and ask them to come to UConn and play for you?
4: <laughs> well, it depends how good they are. Uh,
2: <laughs> well, you wouldn't be meeting with them if they weren't good, right?
4: Well, it depends. It depends. You know, uh, I mean, there are some kids that you know, like Adana Tarazi or Sue Bird, you know, that you're like, all right, you know, th- th- these are these are kids that uh, are going to define your program. I mean, these are kind of kids that are going to start for you for four years, and you're going to win championships. And you know, Maya Moore type. You know, they they become legendary. You know, so if you're talking to a kid like that, uh, you know, for us, it's a, it's a simple message. It's uh, hey, look, you know, you have a chance to be one of the best players in the country, maybe the player of the year in the country. Who knows? Um, and if 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 that's important to you and if winning championships is important to you uh that's what we do for a living you know uh, it's not for everybody you know not everybody can succeed here in Connecticut but if you think you got it in you and you think you're tough enough and you think you're good enough then this is the best place for you to find out
2: so you almost uh you hit them with the, are you ready for the challenge as much as anything right
4: well yeah i mean think about it what are they going to do for us i mean what are they going to do here that we haven't already done? Right. You know, so it's not like you know, uh, you know, uh, if I'm Paul Westhead at the at, at the University of Oregon and I'm trying to build a program and I'm trying to entice kids to come that want, hey, look, we can win the Pac-10 championship, we can go to the Final Four. You know, it's it's all fresh, it's new, and boom, 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 boom. You know, we're recruiting kids that if if they come here. And we go to the final four and we win a national championship and we're undefeated. Everybody in the state of Connecticut is going to go, yeah, so what? They've done that a bunch of times. Um, So you've got to get kids that are personally motivated because of what they want to get out of it. You know, the challenge that they have of, I want to play against the best players in the country. I want to play in the best program. I want to challenge myself to see whether I can, you know, add to the legacy that's been at UConn, which is almost impossible to do. So, um, you know, it's like playing shortstop or playing center field for the New York Yankees. You know, it, no matter what you do, it's been done before.
2: Yeah, that's a tough spot. So, Gino, this is the 40 year anniversary of Title IX. What's the state of not only women's college basketball but women's sports in general? I'm see. I'm sure you've seen so much change over your tenure at UConn.
4: Yeah, it it certainly has changed the complexion of uh, of sports all over America on. Uh, high school campuses, college campuses. Um, you know, you look at the pros. I think Title IX made it uh, possible for an awful lot of uh, young kids growing up that said, you know, hey, why can't I? Why can't I be like my brother? You know, like why can't I go to college, get a scholarship, play, you know, play a sport just like my brother does? Um, and I think Title IX. Uh, gave kids the opportunity to do that. And uh, unfortunately with that came uh, schools dropping men's sports uh, as a mean, uh, as a way to uh, stay in in compliance with having to have X number of women on scholarships. And uh, also all the rules and regulations that were added uh, to make sure that people complied with it, have in some ways hurt men's sports, which is unfortunate. So, uh, the continuing challenge is how do we keep even more uh, opportunities for women to pursue their, their their dream just like their brother can, and, and at the same time, how do we keep administrators from cutting off men's sports as an excuse to get rid of them? Um, so there's still a lot of challenges out there, but compared to where we were in 1972 when I graduated from high school, uh, well, it's like... Uh, your black rotary phone and whatever you're carrying in your pocket now.
2: Yeah, big difference. Are you seeing when you're out and about? Is the pool of young girls who are playing sports is that getting bigger and bigger? Because I hear these stories all the time. I'm not. I'm sure not at UConn, but at the smaller universities, that a large number of female athletic scholarships go unused. Is the pool getting bigger?
4: Well, in some sports, it is, and and I think it. Uh, uh, it's going to continue to grow. Um, You know, unfortunately, uh, you get kids, like let's take soccer, for instance. You know, kids play soccer. Moms take them to play soccer when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. A lot of those kids, when they get to be 17 and time to go to college, they're not interested anymore. Um, You know, so for every one of those situations that you have, though, you've got uh, kids that want to play lacrosse in college and and schools maybe don't have uh, enough programs that kids want to play in. You know, they still stick with the traditional uh, softball, volleyball, uh, you know, track and field, swimming, but uh, anymore now, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's other sports that, uh, that you're going to have to provide. And having said that, There's a lot of truth to the fact that uh, colleges are being mandated to have X number of college sports for women and X number of athletes, women athletes, when in reality that might not always be possible at every school. So uh, you're not completely wrong on on that point,
2: believe me interesting Gino Ariyama UConn women's basketball coach he's also coaching the U.S. women's national team this summer in London Hall of Famer he's joining me Uh, Pat Summit. she stepped aside a few months ago I know you've been close she's an icon like you are as a women's basketball coach and as a coach in general your thoughts on Pat Summit?
4: well I think you said it Uh, you know there's there's very few coaches that coach that many years number one uh very few that that do it that long at one school uh certainly no one has done it better uh won more games uh had the impact that that she's had on on not just the players that she's coached but a lot of coaches that are coaching and the game itself so uh you know you go through life and there's there's certain uh, there's certain people when you mention their sport, uh, they're the first name that pops up in your mind. Uh, you know whether it's uh, you know Vince Lombardi in football or John Wooden in basketball or, or you know Dean Smith in college basketball. Uh, you know you, you you hear names and you automatically think of what they've done, how long they've done it, how well they've done it. Um, you know and Pat is um, is is one of those rare, rare individuals who's going to be remembered that way.
2: Yeah, quite a legacy that she leaves behind. And it sounds like she's still going to be involved with the program in in some capacity. But have you had a chance to have a a private conversation with her since her announcement? Uh,
4: I did speak speak with her uh, at the Final Four. Um, And I, you know, you kind of get a sense that it's, it's not going in the right direction in, in terms of, you know, that there's so many other things that are more important in your life at that point. And uh, right now, you know, coaching basketball or, or the day-to-day duties of running a basketball program uh, as opposed to, you know, her doing whatever she has to do to stay healthy and, and um, run her life the way she wants to run it with her family. Uh, you could sense that when, when when I was talking to her, and I'm not surprised by the announcement.
2: Just a few minutes left with UConn women's basketball coach Gina Oriyama. Gina, okay, so you've got the Olympics coming up in just a few months. Where are you right now with preparations with the team for London?
4: Well, we've got a training camp coming up uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, this week in Seattle. Uh, we have an exhibition game. Uh, Saturday with uh, uh, the Chinese national team. Um, We've got a scrimmage uh, with with Japan on Sunday. So this will be our first get together, really, uh, since the team was announced. And then we'll get together in mid-July, have a couple weeks together, and then we're ready to play. So we don't have a lot of time together and – uh fortunately for me it's the uh, almost identical team that we had that won the world championship two years ago uh so that's going to be a big help but uh, uh this this week is kind of the kickoff uh, and i'm pretty excited about it
2: how hard is it get to get everyone to check their egos at the door and you know really come together as a team and to represent their country because you've got the best of the best on this team
4: yeah we do yeah we do and uh, for the most part not that difficult I think uh, you know when you're playing for USA Basketball and you know that it's such a, uh, an exclusive group that gets to do that uh, so you've got 12 people that uh, they were selected and they were selected based on their ability to get along and to put their ego aside and you know to to, uh, to kind of play their role whatever that role is so it's not that difficult, not as difficult as you might think. Uh, if you were putting together, let's say, a, a, a big, a big money team for you know a pro sport or you know nine high school Americans playing in college, this is not that difficult. As, and especially with the women, because they they have a pretty good understanding um, because they play on the same teams a lot of times overseas. Um, so you've got a couple things that you got to deal with, but. All in all, it's uh, it's all about winning. You don't you don't have any issues.
2: You ever touch base with uh, Coach K and talk hoops because he's coaching the men's team, obviously.
4: Yeah, we uh, last uh, last time we were together was over in uh, I was in Las Vegas at one of their training camps, uh, and, and had a chance to sit down and uh, kind of observe what they do and how they do it. Um, Their issues are so much different than ours. Uh, Their game is in in some ways a little bit different than ours. Uh, And and during the season, you know, we both kind of got our own things going. But uh, when we get together in July in Washington, D.C., the men's team will be there and and we'll be there and we'll be together for about a week. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, I I get a chance to, to get caught up on a lot of things.
2: Great stuff! I see you're on Twitter at Gino Ariama. Do you like Twitter, and are we going to see you tweeting during the Olympics?
4: <laughs> I might do that. I might do that. I'm, I'm not completely sold on it yet. I like reading some of the dumb stuff that other people have to say. <laughs> I don't like. I'm not. I'm not as good at putting stuff out there as some people are. But uh, some people are pretty creative with it. Uh, some are pretty funny. Some are just, uh, you know, it's another way of trying to make themselves relevant you know uh but i I think from the olympics uh that would be a great opportunity to uh to kind of connect with some people back home and around the world so i think i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a shot
2: that's great i mean i think one of the things about twitter is people love to see the the inside access the behind the scenes stuff and obviously you're living and breathing that so uh you know any pictures or any insight that you can tweet out, I'm sure people would appreciate it. All right, so you've got the game coming up on Saturday, May 12th, 7.30, at Key Arena up in Seattle. You're playing the Chinese women's national team. People should uh, come out and see that. And then you said you're scrimmaging Japan on Sunday. Best of luck to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. And uh, go get the gold medal. Well,
4: thanks for having me. It's always uh uh, it, it's always great for me to get an opportunity to talk basketball and, and uh, uh, you know, especially in that part of the country where we've not been to very often. Uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it. I can't wait for
2: this weekend. Gino, best of luck. And now uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks again.
0: Thank you. This is sports business radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up.
2: or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.
0: This is Sports Business Radio.
2: All right, we're back. There's probably not a more controversial system in all of sports than the BCS, and the man who is atop of that system joins me now, Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS. Bill, how are you?
7: Hey, Brian, I'm fine. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, thanks for making the time. It's good to catch up with you again. Before we get started, I mean, you're a guy who has run 15 marathons. You've ridden your bike across the U.S. twice. Do you have any rides or runs coming up?
7: You know, I I ride or run every day. I love being outdoors. Uh, Don't miss a day, even in the snow or hot weather. Uh, I'm dreaming of hiking the Appalachian Trail. I mean, really hiking it, Brian. Not like
2: Governor Sanford did. How long does that take to hike the trail?
7: The trail takes six months, so um, it's it's in the future. But it's uh, it's one of the great last great adventures, and I'm uh, having having done the bike thing. I'm I'm ready to try something else.
2: Well, that would be a lot of fun, and I'm sure it would be very uh, beautiful and scenic. Let's talk about the BCS. I know you've been in the news lately. You've said that this is down to a four-team playoff with some options and you know all kinds of questions about where the games will be played, how do you qualify, the dates. What's the current status of where you are with these conversations?
7: The commissioners uh, have elected to present some four-team options to their conferences. And that will happen over the next uh, three to four weeks, five weeks maybe. And then sometime in June, the commissioners will come back together and compare notes. And I hope by early summer uh, we will have a, uh, a format for the future. There's a long way to go with this. There's still Those points remaining are very difficult. And uh, there's a chance that the conferences will not come to an agreement and, and we will continue with something like we have. Uh, but I'm 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 optimistic about the future,
2: Bill. We saw that Big East Commissioner John Marinato, uh recently resigned. There's been so much of a shifting landscape with conferences over the last year or two. Do you think we're headed towards su- four super conferences here, and the champions of those super conferences would be the four teams that would play in this playoff?
7: I don't feel that way. I think there's. Uh Obviously, there, there there are many more schools than just those uh, in in Division One A, and I'm not hearing a lot of talk among the commissioners or the presidents about uh, quote unquote super conferences. Um, it's it's an interesting thing for fans uh, to think about and talk about, but I'm, I'm I don't I don't see it.
2: Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS, is my guest. So, okay, the question everyone wants to know is how do you select the four teams for the playoffs? Are they conference champions? Is it part of the current BCS system? Is there a selection committee? How would that work?
7: Well, actually, there's two parts of that question, and it's a fascinating question to talk about. And I I love talking about it. I love. We have a great forum on our website, uh, which is Every Game Counts. Uh, among fans about what they would like to see um, but the question is basically how do you how do you pick the two teams uh, by, by by what kind of making me- by what kind of metrics and not two teams excuse me four in the future by what kind of metrics do you pick the four teams and then who are the four teams as you said are they are they the, the, the top four conference champions or is it the teams ranked uh, one two three four and both of those have upsides and downsides, uh, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk at length about it, but but suffice to say they both have upsides and downsides that our group is going to have to work through.
2: What are the upsides and the downsides? Let's talk about that for a moment.
7: Okay. Well, well, obviously, if, if it's a matter of a selection committee versus um, something like we have now, a combination of metrics and human polls, um Many people think the selection committee, uh, it certainly works in basketball. And as you know, I worked with the tournament for 16 years, and so I was in that meeting room helping select the teams for 16 years, and I saw it work. I I know it works. But is it harder, would it be more difficult to select two or four football teams for a football tournament uh, than it is to select 34 at-large teams for basketball? I think it probably would be. Uh, and certainly much more contentious. Um, but on the other hand, a committee can make human judgments um, on the spur of the moment that, that uh, is more difficult in a different situation. You know, on, in, in, on behalf of what we have, we have 171 human beings voting, and then their votes are tempered, leavened, by uh, the six uh, data analysis. So you've got a nice blend of art and science, and I suspect even if you have a committee that there will be some kind of attempt made to maintain a balance between uh, the art and the science like we have now. It's a fascinating question, and when I talk to people about it on airplanes and and in in stores when they find out what I do, it's about 50-50 with people insisting that a committee would be better. And then the other 50% saying, oh, my goodness, no, you can't have a committee.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS, is my guest. Bill, uh, one of our Facebook listeners, uh, Brian, wants to know, if the BCS goes to a four-team playoff, as is rumored, will the existing bowl still be used as exhibition games for the teams that do not make the playoffs? How would that work?
7: You know, one of the great things I enjoy about talking to you is having those Facebook questions. Uh, So so I want to thank Brian for submitting that one. Uh, it, it, remain, it remains to be seen. Uh, that's another issue that has to be decided in the matter of where the, the, the three games would be played, the two semifinals and the championship game. Uh, again, there's upsides and downsides to that. Uh, they could be played on campus, which would guarantee a great atmosphere, but a significant advantage for the home team, um, and, and maybe would not have the pageantry that we have in, in, in a bowl situation now Uh, and of course everybody in our group wants to maintain the bowl tradition and the bowl experience for the athletes. Uh, Everybody understands what what an important part of college football that is. Um, So a lot of decisions are left. One, One about a tournament is that I know a lot of people have thought about it is but would fans go to successive games in different parts of the country. In other words, Nebraska, let's just say, would 20,000 Nebraska fans go to Miami for a semifinals game, and then if they win, would they pack up and go to Pasadena, say, for a championship game the next week? That remains to be seen.
2: Well, with the NCAA tournament for basketball, I mean, I think you've seen that there are schools that travel well and there are schools that don't travel so well, so it's kind of a hit-and-miss Thing, isn't it I mean but most of the elite football schools generally travel pretty well don't they
7: yeah most of the top ones do but there's never been a circumstance where they had to go two weeks in a row on such short notice um in basketball you're right that people it is hit and miss in basketball but the number of tickets is so much less I think for first round game in basketball I think each team got 250 tickets well here we would be hoping that the schools would buy 15 to 20,000 So it's a significant difference.
2: So obviously ticket sales are a big part of this equation here because the last thing you want to do is stage a game and then have a venue that's not completely sold out, right?
7: One of the magical things about our championship game is that the stadium is full to to overflowing every year and that so many fans, 99% of the fans in the stadium, care about one team or another. And so we don't want to lose that. Um, And that'll be an important consideration about where where the semifinals are. Can we maintain that kind of atmosphere uh, two weeks in a row? And I, I tend to think we can, but nobody knows for sure.
2: So, Bill, I was going to ask you, why not a 16-team or an 8-team playoff? And it sounds like you've kind of already answered that. You're thinking, can we fill a venue two weekends in a row? If you add an 8-team or a 16-team playoff, now you're looking at three or four weekends in a row. And it sounds like everyone thinks that that's probably not a a likely scenario.
7: Yeah, you're right on, Brian. That's that's what's happened. Uh, Our group has decided uh, not to pursue 8- or 16-team tournaments um, and, and the, the travel is, is a big part of it, as well as uh, t- and nobody in our group wants to take away from the regular season. You know, we have the most compelling and the most meaningful regular season in sports, and the commissioners are convinced that a four-team tournament w- would not detract from the regular season. But any more than that, and you start taking away. Um, certainly it happened in the sport that I love, basketball. Uh, You know, March is terrific, but December, January, February maybe aren't quite as strong because I think a lot of the energy has has gone into March and away from the regular season in basketball, and we, we can't afford for that to happen to us in football.
2: Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS, is my guest. Bill, how much does the expiration of the TV contract in 2014 have to do with the time frame of getting this all figured out? Because, you know, I would imagine your TV partners are going to want to know the direction of uh, the BCS in the future.
7: Yes, it's very important. Actually, we do this exercise every four years uh, in preparation for the next TV contract. We went through it in 2004, and changes were made. We went through it in 2008, and the changes were. Uh, were not major, and now uh, in another year coinciding with the presidential election year, by the way, uh, I think major changes are ahead. And we do have two more years to go on the current TV contract, but uh, the time to begin negotiating the next contract is, is this fall. So we want to be ready for that.
2: And then the time frame for these games, you're looking at something between Christmas and early January as far as the semifinals and the final game. Uh, I know you know. some people have said you really want to have that January 1st day back because we've kind of moved off that day and you've got it spread out. How important is that time frame for you?
7: The, the time frame is extremely important. Um, and it, it, the time frame came about because we don't want to be playing or practicing for a huge game during final exams. And because there's 120 schools a part of our event, um, Somebody has exams all the way up until like December 21st. So we basically have settled on a calendar from somewhere around December 27, 28 through January 8, 9. And uh, we'd like to provide as much time in between the semifinals and the championship game as we can for the teams to prepare and, and let their bruises heal. And, of course, also for the, for the fans to be able to go online and, and buy their airline tickets for the next site.
2: So you're probably looking at like two weeks in between games, kind of like the conference championships and the Super Bowl in the NFL?
7: Yeah, I don't know if we can make two weeks. Maybe ten days might be the best we can do. Uh, The thinking right now is somewhere between seven and ten days.
2: Bill, what do you have to say to the critics out there? You know, I have read the book Death to the BCS, and in there they talk about the NFL, they don't farm out their most lucrative product, which is their postseason. And the NCAA does that with Division One football. Do you think, are there any conversations about changing things that radically, or is the BCS here to stay for the long term?
7: Well, first of all, I read the book, too, and there, there were many mistakes in the book, and uh, and they conveniently did not talk to many people who, uh, they didn't talk to me, for example, or, or any commissioners that I know of. Um, but, but nonetheless, the bowl uh, system has been around for a long time, and it's paid great benefits for college student-athletes for many years. And I, I, I guess the book was advocating doing away with the bowls, and uh, I just think m- m- um, most of us, I certainly, and, and the majority of the folks involved in administering the game want to keep the bowls.
2: So, in other words, the BCS is here to stay for a while. So, here's another question. You've got, we had two teams, now we're talking about a four-team playoff, and I like that for the record, but are you always, you know, before we always heard from team number three that was on the outside, oh, I should be in the game and I'm in the top two, are we going to hear from team number five now that says, hey, I was team number five, I should have been in the top four?
7: Absolutely we will. Just like in the tournament we heard from, when I was there, we heard from team 65. Absolutely. That's part of it. Um, Every bracket, the first team left out, is going to be disappointed.
2: So it won't be as cut and dry as the conference champions of these designated conferences. You're in, you win your conference, you're in, and and that's end of story. Uh, It's going to be something a little bit more complicated than that.
7: Well, that's an interesting question, and we almost got to it a minute ago, and I'm afraid I got sidetracked, so forgive me for that. But there's a question about whether this these four teams should be the the top-ranked four conference champions or just teams ranked 1, 2, 3, 4. Obviously, if you have 1, 2, 3, 4, you've got a pure bracket. It's the best four teams in the country. Um, But then if you have the four conference champions, well, I'll give you an example. This year, those teams would have been ranked number 1, 3, 5, and 10. And... That that might have been just fine. That's up, that's up to our group to decide, and we're we're not really very close to having to making a decision about it. But I, I think the fans have to ask themselves: Would they prefer to see teams ranked one, two, three, four, or teams ranked one, three, five, and ten? It's kind of a fundamental question that I'm I'm actually very curious about what fans think about it.
2: And again, you mentioned a website earlier where people can go and express their opinions. What's that website again, Bill? Yeah, thank you. It's it's
7: Facebook. It's just go to uh, Every Game Counts on Facebook, and you can register your opinion.
2: Every Game Counts. And before I let you go, again, the time frame for making a decision on this four-team playoff, you said we're, what, five or six weeks out, and you ideally want to have this done uh, summertime?
7: Yep, by early summer. I hope to, We hope to have it done.
2: Alright, well Bill Hancock, the Executive Director of the BCS Thank you so much for taking the time to join me Best of luck with uh, the decisions that you make I know it's a controversial system Some people love it, some people hate it But uh, I know you're working hard And uh, we'll catch up with you again sometime soon
0: Thank you very much, Brian Take care This is SBR Back with more after this Seems
4: like yesterday But it was long ago
2: It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, Coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything Is On the Record, visit us online at EverythingIsOnTheRecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EverythingIsOnTheRecord.com.
0: This is Sports Business Radio.
2: All right, we're back. Lots of thank yous on a packed show this week. James Kennedy, Maury Brown, Dr. Carl Kaluza, Caleb Canales, the head basketball coach of the Portland Trailblazers, Coach Gino Ariyama, the head basketball coach at UConn for the ladies. He's going to be coaching the U.S. women's team in the Olympics this summer and Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes every week. We'd love it if you post a review of our podcast. Of course, I'm on Twitter, at SB Radio. want to thank our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Jared Melzer, Doug Zanger, and Max Waterman. I also want to remind you, we're still looking for sponsors. If you want to be a partner of this show. I heard from some good companies this week when I put that that out there on the uh, last podcast. We'll make it very affordable for you. We have some really unique ways to integrate you in with our different platforms, including this podcast. So if you're interested, brian at sportsbusinessradio.com, brian at sportsbusinessradio.com, and that's with N-I-B-R-I-A-N. Again, follow me on Twitter, at SBRadio. We go out with some beastie boys. In honor of the passing of MCA. I remember the Beastie Boys growing up, they were great. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.